This episode of the Artsy Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Artists, photographers, and designers of all kinds have used Squarespace to showcase their works, and you can do it too. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch your site and show your work to the world, use the offer code ARTSY to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's offer code ARTSY, A-R-T-S-Y. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by Executive Editor Alexander Forbes. Hey, Isaac. And Editor Casey Lesser. Hey, Isaac. Hello to both of you. Welcome back. This is our first uh, return to kind of our normal podcast format for 2018, so it's exciting to, to get back to it. And this week, we're going to be talking about 2018, the exhibitions, the issues, the events that we're kind of going to be keeping an eye on and looking forward to in the coming year. Um, Casey, you've been randomly selected to uh, start off this week's episode. So what are you going to be keeping an eye on this year in 2018? One thing I will be keeping an eye on are galleries and their abilities to be nimble and develop new models to not only drive sales, but also engage new audiences. Um, In 2017, we saw a lot of interesting things happening in New York For example, we saw Bill Powers doing one-night-only shows. We saw the Journal Gallery start a series of week-long shows. Um, And the Condo Initiative that started in London, a big uh, citywide gallery collaborative event, um, came to New York. So um, this year, kind of looking forward to seeing what galleries will do to continue to keep things interesting, to bring people in the door of galleries. One thing I've seen already is Paula Cooper Gallery is starting a new series. They're giving the reins for a small exhibition each month to a junior member of their staff. Her name is Laura Hunt. She's the gallery's archivist, and she's also an artist. And she'll be pairing works of emerging artists from local New York communities um, with an established artist who's shown with the gallery in the past. Yeah, I'm kind of curious, you know, last year in 2017, there was a part of this kind of nimbleness and changing was due to pressure, economic pressure that galleries were experiencing. There's obviously another side of that coin where you have someone like uh, David Zorner expanding with a $50 million Renzo Piano mini Whitney in New York, which is, which is kind of a big change for a gallery, but that's obviously not born of economic pressure. How do you sort of see the changing economics of the art market sort of impacting galleries going forward in 2018? Is it going to continue to be kind of tough or what, what do you think? Um, I don't know that I'm like the expert on this to speak to this, but I do think the onus is going to continue to be on galleries to keep things interesting and to kind of do new and different things. In the case of Zorner, you know, that's alternative because no one else is doing that. Um, Sounds like it will be almost like a mini museum and kind of in dialogue with the Whitney, you know. This is the recently announced David Zorner plan to open a five-story Renzo Piano design building, $50 million, three stories of which are going to be galleries. It's going to be done in conjunction with a developer, but it is it is kind of an unprecedented scope and scale for a commercial gallery to kind of, you know, take on a name of an architect who designed the Whitney has been associated with museums and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, those mega galleries like David Turner have been doing exceedingly well over the recent years. Um, 
On the one hand, you can see that as a growing inequality within the art market. On the other hand, it's also, again, reflective of something we were talking about last year, just in terms of the changing role of a gallery of that size. Um, they are just doing things that, that galleries haven't done before. And so while you saw you know, a good number of smaller and mid-sized galleries closing last year, and a lot of focus was placed on that, you know, small and mid-sized galleries, like many small businesses, do tend to have a relatively high churn rate and, and, and closure rate. And that's because it, it, it is a risky high investment business. I'm, I'm hopeful that in 2018, we start to see greater mechanisms put in place to help support the long-term growth of those galleries. There are, you know, several nascent initiatives that would allow them to profit from their artists' work over a greater period of time. You know, one of the, the key issues that you consistently hear is, hey, I put all this money into my young artist. Uh, just as they're getting to be popular, a bigger gallery takes them on and, and profits from my investment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that that's an issue that as the art market, we need to look to solve. Uh, it's just not going to create a healthy environment in the long term. I don't know how much to blame um, you know, I, th- I think people like David Zorner become an easy target when looking at that issue. It is a larger industry issue, though, not concentrated on individuals. So turning away kind of from market dynamics and towards, you know, thematic trends and what exhibitions are actually coming up in 2018. Casey, I'm wondering if you've if there's anything you've kind of noticed uniting some of the shows that are coming forward. Um, yeah, well, it's something we've been seeing in the past few years, but um, I think it's even more urgent than ever to um, be putting on shows that are representative of um, current political social trends around um, female empowerment. So there are a lot of great shows happening at big museums around the world that are focused on women. So, for example, the um, Radical Women Latin American Art Show that was at the Hammer last year will be coming to the Brooklyn Museum in April. Um, the Pompidou is putting on a Sheila Hicks show. The Tate has shows of Joan Jonas and Annie Albers. MoMA is going to be showing a Tanya Bruguera film next month. That's just to name a few. Um, so it it's really... Um, it's exciting to see that this is just becoming the norm and to see that, you know, museums are being responsive to the artist community. Right, because I imagine uh, a lot of these exhibitions at major museums were in the works well before, you know, the, the Me Too movement kind of took on right. national prominence. But there is sort of, you know, it's, it's now tied into that. Right. And I, I suspect that, you know, we'll see more and more pop up as the year goes on. Um, also, 2020 is the centennial of women's suffrage. So I think we're going to see a lot going on in museums in the years leading up to that. Another thing, and this is like kind of wishful thinking, is, you know, in the past, not not as much last year, but probably two years ago, we saw so many all-female shows. And um, I think that it'll be exciting to see group shows where, you know, there's the balance of men and women and perhaps even more women than men. Um, for example, I just saw that Anton Kern's opening a group show this weekend, and um, it's called Ten. It's Ten Painters. They all happen to be female, um, but that's not part of the, you know, press release or anything. It's just you know, putting on a painting show. It doesn't matter that you know they all happen to be women. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a trend we would 
I would hope to see happening across the board a little bit of well, we kind of internalized a lot of these things over the past years, culminating um, in the second half of last year with the Me Too movement, but really using this year, hopefully, to more proactively put some of those realizations into practice. Our colleague Anna Sussman has been covering this extensively from an industry perspective and, and starting to look at how, you know, various solutions that we could as an industry take on to address that problem. She recently worked with uh, an independent curator and Yale graduate student, Lucy Hunter, on a piece about the lack of you know, traditional HR structures in the art world. You know, one, one of the things that's been consistently cited in, in her reporting has been that, you know, the, the casual nature of the art world and the fact that galleries um, and, you know, even some larger uh, institutions don't have the structures that you might have in a traditional corporation that protect um, workers and, and particularly women from sexual harassment. So I think we, we spent a lot of time at the latter half of 2017 really digesting a lot of what's happened, and I'm sure that'll continue and needs to continue. Um, I'd be looking for uh, our industry and, and other industries out there to address these things more proactively uh, in the new year. Alex, I'm kind of curious, to what extent do you think the broader political climate, which is obviously extremely divisive, extremely charged right now, is fueling some of the controversies that we saw, not just, you know, involving the Me Too movement, but also earlier in 2017 with Dana Schutz's painting of Emmett Till, which drew fierce protests at the Whitney. How do you sort of see the tenor of politics outside the art world impacting what's happening, the conversations, the the debates that are happening inside the art world. You know, I think in 2017, obviously, we were in a moment where particularly uh, those on, on the kind of left side of politics, um, as, you know, New York City leans and as the, New York, as the art world leans as well, were confronting some pretty significant changes to the country and to just the general tenor of conversation that led everybody uh, or, or, you know, a lot more people to become politically engaged than they were in the past. Um, in the art world, that played out in a number of, uh, you know, some some very important discussions, some uh, slightly more surface uh, ap- approaches that, that asked for censorship and in some times gained it. I hope that in 2017, you know, as the pendulum swings hopefully back the other way as people regain agency to take control of their political fate in a political way and less throwing vitriol back and forth as people can unite behind a a potential shift back towards, I think, how how most in in New York City and and in the art world would like to see this country heading, um, that we might see a slight decrease or at least a slightly more productive discussion around the controversies uh, that that led to a lot of petitioning last year and an uptick in censorship, which uh, doesn't, to me, feel that aligned with, with the values of, of art and culture. Yeah, I mean, I think we can, for another podcast, have a debate around the word censorship. But, but for now, I'm, I, I kind of wonder... You know, I think these debates are obviously super crucial, those raised by protests around the Dana Schutz painting in the Whitney Biennial. And I think it's interesting because, to my mind, because these debates pit the left against the center, not the left against the right, the center 
you know, center centrist Democrats regaining control of Congress isn't going to alter the equation where, you know, people to the left in the art world, people who are in more marginalized groups, it, it's not actually going to change what they're mad about. It's not going to alter the institutions within the art world. So I would be very surprised uh, if a broader shift in politics would impact some of these cases uh, or what we would see them essentially disappear following the midterms. What might happen or what I would suspect maybe more would happen is is sort of the more apolitical disputes like the ones you saw at the at the Guggenheim around animal cruelty, which I think were motivated by a kind of desire to to be like, this is an obvious wrong animal cruelty. Everyone can get on board with that. Everything's so messed up in the world right now. The one thing we can do is stop this. Save the puppies. Save the puppies, exactly. So that I sort of see potentially maybe um, being more impacted by broader politics, political swings. I think the Dana Schutz case taught us that, you know, artists need to be super thoughtful and ready to be held accountable for their work. Um, I think that it was, it's, you know, not just artists, curators as well, especially, you know, curating new shows, creating new work. Everyone needs to be super intelligent and ready to, you know, defend their work and um, have a good argument. Mm. And yeah, I think, you know, before we kind of leave the conversation, one thing worth saying is that this, these kind of debates are, are very pendulum swingy, not necessarily because the issues disappear, but because the attention paid to them by the media and by other groups ebbs and flows. Uh, so if you look back on the history uh, of the art world, there's many, 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 many instances of uh, left-leaning political groups, minority groups challenging the institutional structures of the art world for decades in the past. So this is this is not new, and it's and it's almost definitely not going away. Whether or not we'll hear less about it is, is an open question, I think. And since we are kind of talking about museums and institutions and how they serve the public, I think that's going to be a central topic kind of moving out of the political sphere uh, just more generally. What are museums' responsibility to the public? And that question was raised very powerfully in 2017 by the Berkshire Museum's selling of 40-odd works or the attempted sale of those works to raise $60 million to fund kind of a pivot, uh, you know, renovations, uh, what have you, in violation of industry guidelines. And this attracted, you know, an intense fury and ultimately a lawsuit that has temporarily halted the sale while the museum is being investigated. That, to my mind, is kind of conceptually tied into something that has happened in 2018, which is the Met's decision to institute a $25 fee for adults, out-of-state visitors. Um, previously, the museum was just pay what you wish, suggested donation and and now uh, in, a, in a few months this uh kind of mandatory fee for out-of-towners will be instituted which has provoked an intense debate around what the met's responsibility is to its public but also what our ideal institutions look like who should fund them how and 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 what that means so so before you know i, I obviously have some thoughts on this but before i kind of pontificate anymore uh I was wondering if either one of you sort of what, what were your kind of reactions to the to the Mets decision? Well, I remember a few years ago they made a point to put back up the signs that said suggested donation because it became unclear that it was a choice. They were actually there was a lawsuit around that. Yeah. 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 Um, and having grown up in New York, you know, being able to go to the Met very 
freely and accessibly. It was so important. But um, at the same time, before I was a member of the press, I was used to going to the MoMA and the Guggenheim and paying full price admission. And this is definitely on par with what is charged at other New York institutions. So it's kind of, uh, I guess I'm torn. The Met is a massive institution and the amount of art they have to protect is insane. And the costs of that are astronomical. So I understand it, but I also understand that $25 is a lot of money. Yeah, it's it's funny actually remembering when, when I moved to New York and I, I went to the Met with a friend, I thought it was absolutely ridiculous that I could get into the museum for a dollar. Now, on the other hand, it's kind of amazing and it's something to be proud of as a New Yorker that we provide that kind of level of cultural institution to individuals for a dollar. I think the problem that arises is that, you know, as a college student then, a dollar was about what I could afford. I don't think that I've significantly raised the amount that I was giving every time I attended in the time since by very much. Um, And so, you know, those sliding scale pricing systems work really well if people are honest and do, you know, pay what they can afford and it it all works out really nicely. But obviously, people are self-interested and and don't necessarily do that. And so I think it's it's a tough position the Met was put in where on the one hand, uh, you know, one section of the Times was was writing about, as, as Marian Menneker pointed out uh, in, in Art Market Monitor, one section of the Times was writing about how, you know, they needed to be fiscally responsible and how much of an outrage it was to put all of these artworks at risk. And then, you know, Dan Weiss takes the, the tough decision to institute admission. And uh, another section of the Times uh, writes about how much of an outrage that is. Um, I think we kind of have to decide how we're going to approach these issues and, and put a united front forward in, in, in some respects as, as publications. But is there, a, is there a better solution to it? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, Isaac, I know you've written about this. I remember you wrote a piece when, when some of the controversies first came out. But it, it doesn't seem like the admission, even if everybody paid 25 bucks, really changes that much for the museum's finances? Yeah, this is such an interesting one because to me, there, there's two debates, right? There's the economic question. Did the Met need to do this to fill this budget deficit that's ballooning? And, to, and, and that's the question that is extremely Met-specific and doesn't really raise broader concerns, basically. Like, it's do, do these numbers add up? Then there is the bigger question um, about sh- basically should museums be free? Should the Met have done this? Should they have exhausted other options? You know, was this the right ideological move? And it's interesting to me because sometimes those two things butt heads or that people choose to debate in one sphere or the, the other sphere in, in a way that's really counterproductive. So w- w- one thing that I thought was interesting was uh, Dan Weiss's interview in Hyperallergic um, where he kind of advocates an ideological model for participation in cultural institutions that is essentially buying into it. So if you receive some benefit from this institution, you should pay for that and you should be bought into this museum. And and that, to me, sounds good on some level, but if, if you don't stop to really think about it, but, you know, to my mind, hearing something like that makes me extremely glad that it's essentially legally impossible for the Met to make New Yorkers pay because the museum is on city land. Because that, 
ideological position that you should buy in to something that provides you benefit. There is no stopgap for that applying to New Yorkers as well as out-of-towners, except for this uh, this kind of legal proposition. So, so I think this idea of co-investment is is one that we'll kind of see maybe more people adopting. Well, it's a very like economist point of view, right? Yeah. Like if you're getting utility out of something, you should be willing to pay for it. The difficulty with culture is that we've decided as a species that this is an important thing to maintain and and propagate amongst uh, you know particularly young people to get a sense of who we are as as a species, and yet some people have the ability to to pay for access to that and some others don't based mm-hmm. on, you know, wh- whether or not they're getting utility out of it. So I think that that's where, you know, again, the pay as you wish policy works perfectly for that. If then people really do pay what they can afford, it's yeah. just like, how do you build any level of uh, honesty into that? Unless we're like, everybody's got, you know, their income on their credit card and you swipe your credit card mm. and the Mets decided, okay, you can afford to pay $12, <laughs> you know, but that's a little scary. <laughs> No, I mean, I think it, it, it also, you know, <laughs> if there's been one theme of this podcast, it's it's how these kind of debates tie into broader questions. And I think that this, to my mind, ties into uh, questions that often Democrats are grappling with, which is like, should we means test everyone? Or should we just say, no, it's universal health care. If that means, you know, rich people get free health care, that's fine because it means poor people don't. So if rich people are getting into the Met for free, uh, but that allows poor people or people who can't afford $25 because it is a hefty chunk of money to get in. Is that okay? Can we can we live with that? And it's also interesting because I've sort of seen th- these fees have pushed, uh, you know, progressive commentators into sort of interesting ideological pretzels where they'll say things like, Oh, David Koch should have paid for free admission instead of the plaza, instead of those fountains. And it's like, wait, so your ideal model is a free museum funded by David Koch, who's like a conservative donor. Like, does that does that really make sense? There was a good piece in Freeze about how really what's happening is, uh, or what we're seeing and have seen for a long time is is sort of just an absence of public money in these institutions, and that's creating these kind of problems where it's either you're paying at the door or they're turning to mega donors. And Daniel Weiss is right that who provides the money is, and this level of investment does come with, in some sense, a say over what that institution looks like and who it serves. So if the money's coming from you at the door in a very atomized way versus if the money's coming from the city, I think the city contributes around 9% of the the budget um, of the Met, or if it's coming from mega donors, I mean, th- these are important questions because you can't just kind of look at the budget of an institution and think that all $10 are the same. You know, where those $10 are coming from, who's providing it matters because that 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 creates the ability to shape the institution. So, you know, obviously the Met is a very New York-centric institution. It's a very prominent one, but, but the issues raised by this imposition of these fees, I think would be well to kind of think about beyond uh, the scope of this of this one museum in New York City. All right, I think that's a good place to leave it. We'll be right back with White Wine, but first, a quick message from our sponsor. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that allows artists, photographers, and designers to create websites showcasing their work. One of them is Miro Chun, who's based in Phoenix, Arizona. 
I'm a full-time ceramicist. I have a small practice called Miro Made This. I talked to Miro about her series of objects titled Perfectly Imperfect, in which she finds the singular beauty in the flaws that can arise when making handcrafted ceramics. So there are all these pieces that something happens, and whether it's something that's just inherent in the material qualities or just something about the process or something, you know, that I did when I was tired or in a rush or something, you know, these things happened. And um, there's this attachment you feel to any of these things that you make. And when you've gotten that far in the process, you just don't really want to throw away all the work that you'd invested into it. So I would keep them around as a reminder, you know, this kind of stuff happens, just move on. And it's just a part of the process. It's funny because these pieces that something's gone awry with, I would have them on a shelf in my studio and whenever somebody would come by, you know, they would always pick that up, you know, and ask, they're like, oh, what's that? You know, how did you do that? And I'd have to explain, well, no, actually it's a mistake. You can see more of Miro's work on her website, MiroMadeThis.com, which was designed using Squarespace. To save 10% off your first purchase of a Squarespace website or domain, use the offer code ARTSY. That's A-R-T-S-Y. So normally for this segment, we do shows we're seeing imminently. uh, But in keeping with the theme of 2018, I thought we could broaden that out a little bit. So... Casey, what are you looking forward to seeing over the course of this year? Um, It is really hard to choose, but I'm really excited for the new museum triennial. Um, It is the only international exhibition in New York devoted to emerging artists, a biennial kind of exhibition. Um, There are about 30 artists from 19 countries, many of whom I'd never heard of before. So I'm really excited to um, learn about new artists and their work. Um, It's also a lot fewer than are usually in a muse- in an exhibition like that, which is exciting. Yeah, um, and curated by Gary, Carrie and Mariari and Alex Gartenfeld. So looking forward to that. Alex? I was just reading about uh, the 10th Berlin Biennale of Contemporary Art, which will open in uh, June at the KW in Berlin. Uh, it's always an exciting look at, at where that art scene is headed and where, where people are thinking there. But this year it sounds particularly interested. It's titled after the 1985 Tina Turner song, We Don't Need Another Hero, which I think is brilliant, Um, and curated by a South African curator, Gabby Nakobo. Um, It's, from what I can gather, is looking at this interesting period that happened right around when that song was written, um, and this, this moment right before vast geopolitical change across the world. And I think, you know, there's, there seems to be a pretty uh, not light allegory being made there to the moment that we're living in now. Um, and I always kind of like exhibitions that take that kind of uh, looking back to look forward stance. So mm-hmm. very excited to see that over the summer. And I am very excited to go see the David Bowie exhibition that's opening at the Brooklyn Museum in March I don't think much more explanation is needed about why that's going to be an amazing show. Um, so thanks so much to our guests for joining us. Great podcast to start off the year. Please remember to rate and subscribe if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to everyone who sent in the overwhelmingly positive feedback about Abby's Art History series of podcasts. It's great to hear you guys like that so much. I did too. If you have any feedback about this podcast, you can send it to podcast at artsy.net. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. 
This podcast was produced, as always, by associate editor Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free. Other music is by Jazar. Thank you.